I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to recognize the subtle pointers that are provided in the text and then to extrapolate from them the things of importance. Here in the middle of Numbers, we find something of interest. In this break between the rebellion of Korah and the death of Miriam 38 years later, we find two chapters of commands. This reoccurring convention that we encounter throughout the book of Numbers serving to draw us into the text in a way that would not be possible without them. These chapters pull us from the narratives and force us to focus on the themes that the narratives are meant to be exploring. To highlight the sometimes unstated purpose of the stories and what we are to learn from these accounts that we have just read. In the first third of the book, these chapters seemed so out of place when we first encountered them, but as we sat and considered them, we discovered that they were in fact placed where they were in order to create a flow of ideas that stretched from one end of the opening third to the other. And in the beginning, it was hard to see. Part of that coming from the fact that the narrative chapters didn't seem like narrative at all, because they contained lists of counts and commands about how the community was to be organized and their defensive moving postures. And so differentiating between narrative chapters and command chapters was a dubious prospect. And that continued until we reached the central portions of the book. In these central portions of the book, we found that the distinction between narrative and command is much easier to discern because it is right there in your face. From chapter 11 through 14, there was only narrative. Four straight chapters of history that engaged our minds like nothing else in the book of Numbers. Stories of failures and complaints and gossips that reached out and pricked the heart of man in a way that is indescribable. And these stories highlight the primary areas of temptation that we face while in the wilderness. Desire, pride, and power. And we find in these stories all the ways that Israel failed. And as a corollary, we find in the story of Yeshua in the wilderness the way that he succeeded when faced with these same temptations. Then just after these chapters of failures, the text takes a sudden break to discuss the finer points of sacrificial law, the distinction of ignorant or high-handed sins, and an accessory that was to be added to the clothing to act as a reminder of just what God Israel served. This chapter speaking directly to the events of the previous chapter. The sacrificial law reminding the people that Hashem was doing without parts of the sacrifices that were due to him. He was in this with them. The high-handed sin and explanation of what had just happened and why Hashem had reacted the way that he had and a warning of what was about to come. And the accessory acting as a way of elevating and giving honor to everyone in the community and a reminder of the holiness that they had because of their covenant with him and to provide a reminder of what he had told them to do. And then it's over. For two more chapters, we read only narratives. One chapter of outright rebellion and high-handed sin an example of taking what had been rightfully given by Hashem and using it as an excuse to overturn Hashem's instructions. 
the other a confirmation of the chosen leadership in Israel, an undeniable miraculous confirmation to, of the anointed servant. Two chapters in contrast to each other. One the results of human chosen leadership, the other result of God chosen leadership. And then two more chapters of command. One of these chapters we covered last week, chapter 18. This chapter represents the acceptance of the people of this new way of living. Not just the priests, but the Levites too, now firmly ensconced in their roles as servants of Hashem and the people of Israel. And as a contrast, the requirements of the people towards the Levites is addressed for the first time. Which brings us to this chapter. Chapter 19 of Numbers. The Red Heifer. A chapter that has once again caused all sorts of confusion among rabbis, priests, pastors, scholars, and laymen as to just how this all works. A chapter that many say confounded Solomon himself so completely that it prompted him to write these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 23. All of this I have tested by wisdom. I have said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. In essence, the preacher seems to be saying, I thought that I was wise. I have discerned everything else that you have read in this book of Ecclesiastes, and yet wisdom was still far from me. And it's thought that it was the red heifer sacrifice that contained the keys to revealing the failure of Solomon's wisdom. For there is found in the red heifer sacrifice a conundrum, a paradox of sorts, that while on the one hand confuses, on the other hand it points us to the greater sacrifice of our Messiah. So let's read this chapter and then speak more on the purposes and riddles contained in the red heifer sacrifice. Numbers chapter 19 And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, This is the law of the Torah which Hashem has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer, a perfect one, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and he shall bring it outside the camp, and shall slay it before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle some of its blood seven times towards the front of the tent of appointment. And the heifer shall be burned before his eyes. He burns its hide and its flesh and its blood and its dung. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet, and throw them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. And the priest shall then wash his garments, and shall bathe his body in water, and afterward come into the camp. But the priest is unclean until evening. And he who is burning it washes his garment in water, and shall bathe his body in water, and is unclean until evening. And a clean man shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, and shall place them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for the water of uncleanness. It is for cleansing from sin. And he who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his garments, and is unclean until evening. And it shall be a law forever to the children of Israel, and to the stranger who sojourns in their midst. He who touches the dead of any human being is unclean for seven days. He is to cleanse himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day he is clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day, then on the seventh day he is not clean. Anyone who touches the dead of a human being and does not cleanse himself defiles the dwelling place of Hashem, and that being shall be cut off from Israel. He is unclean, for the waters of uncleanness was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still upon him. This is the Torah when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent are unclean for seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Anyone in the open field who touches someone slain by a sword, or who has died, or a bone of a man, or a grave, is unclean for seven days. And for the unclean being, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer, burnt for cleansing from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. 
And a clean man shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, and shall sprinkle it on the tent, and on all the vessels, and on the beings who are there, or on the one who touched the bone, or the slain, or a dead, or a grave. And the clean one shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day, and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall cleanse himself, and shall wash his garments, and bathe in water, and shall be clean in the evening. But the man who is unclean and does not cleanse himself, that being shall be cut off from among the assembly, because he has defiled the set-apart place of Hashem. Water for uncleanness has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. And it shall be a law for them forever. And the one who sprinkles the water for uncleanness washes his garments. And the one who touches the water for uncleanness is unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean being touches is unclean. And the being who touches it is unclean until evening. Now, I've made the claim on many occasions before that I don't believe the Bible to describe for us the definitions of good and evil. I mean, just listen to the intro of this podcast. As we read through scripture, we find that there are countless times when we find what humans describe as good being contradicted by God as evil, and what humans call evil being called or even turned to good by Hashem. Good and evil is a scale that is subjective for the majority of humanity. And so I have chosen to instead take the standpoint of looking at scripture through a lens of life versus death. And this chapter is one of the many that has prompted me to take this view. For what is it that we find is anathema to the presence of Hashem in this chapter? It's something that was hinted at in the book of Leviticus, but that was never specifically called out. It was the underlying defining factor for these things that produce uncleanness. It's something that's a bit counterintuitive when you read of all of the sacrifices and the blood and the corpses of the, and such of the animals that were sacrificed on the altar in Hashem's presence. But as we consider the topic of uncleanness as it is discussed throughout Leviticus, and as the topic is reintroduced here in the midst of the book of Numbers, we find the conclusion that we reached before being explicitly confirmed in several ways. Uncleanness is always connected to death, in every single case. And for this one chapter of Numbers, we encounter this word, uncleanness, in greater concentration than in any other chapter in the book of Numbers. And we find two types of uncleanness addressed in this chapter. There is unclean, tame, and uncleanness, nida. And in this case, it is explicitly stated that this status has to do with coming near death. Not just touching death, but being in the same space as death. In the same tent, touching a grave or a bone, simply being near someone when they died. Every single instance of nearness to death made a person unclean, and in this state, a person could not enter into the tabernacle to worship. Doing so would defile the holy space. But we also find that if a person is in this state and does not take care of it at the earliest convenience, that they are also expelled from the camp completely. Death is anathema to Hashem. It cannot come into His presence. He is a God of life. He gave life. He sustains life. He provided the option for life to man. And man chose death for the sake of knowledge. And in this we find that the previous chapters, chapter 18 specifically, as it describes the eating of the sacrifice by the priests, also speaks on this topic. What state must a priest or any member of his household be in before eating of the sacrifices that were offered on the altar? They must be clean. Tahor. And it is here that we discover just what it is that is happening behind the scenes 
to prompt this chapter to be placed at this point in the book. Where are we in the narrative of the book of Numbers? We're in the midst of the chapters that represent a 38-year break in the story. And what is it that occurred in these 38 years of just sitting in one place? The older generation passed away, those who we have been with since the beginning of Exodus. Numbers 14, 32-35 said it this way, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do, and all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. 603,548 bodies, and that's just the men of the previous generation, had to be dealt with in this intervening 38 years. And during this time, just as always, the uncleanness of death would have been everywhere. And this is one of the themes that undergirds these two chapters, the death of the previous generation. There were going to be a lot of people dying over the next 38 years, and yet the necessity for cleanliness cannot, as we see represented here, be understated. This is something that Israel must know if they're going to continue to serve Hashem. Even in the midst of this death, the people will still need to be clean in order for Hashem to be in their midst, and in order for them to draw close to Him. So with that, let's turn to the process itself and explore the significance of the process and the items and symbols and the correlations that we find here to other places in Scripture. First off, the water of cleansing that is created through the ritual with the red heifer that is described in this chapter is something that we have seen hinted at before. We have read of it, but if we were reading through the Torah for the first time, we would have been left scratching our head in wonder as we attempt to discover how a person is to be cleansed from the defilement for a dead body, as in Numbers 9, and just what is the water of sin, as in Numbers 8-7, among other places. And if this were the case that you were reading through for the first time, you would have been forced to wait until now to discover just what was required in these instances. And I believe the reason for that to be just what I covered to draw our attention to the death of the previous generation during this break in the text. For this next 38 years, this is the only narrative that is worth mentioning. And so rather than coming right out and saying it, the author chooses to teach us some pretty awesome things through these deaths. To begin with, a heifer is brought to accomplish this process. A heifer, that is, a female cow that has not given birth to a calf, so a virgin cow, and also one that has never been used as an animal of labor. This heifer is to be red in color and perfect. Now, this presents a very interesting word pun idea in the text that we miss in the English. The heifer is to be red. Why? There does not seem to be any reason at all for this. Rabbis and theologians for centuries have simply scratched their heads and said, It is not for us to know. It is something mystical that we simply cannot know. Uh, that's one view, but I would like to propose another. Is there, in the name of the heifer, a reminder of what the water was to cleanse from? A lesson for us to learn. 
The name of the heifer is, in verse 2, para aduma tamima, a heifer, red and perfect. And in verse 11, we read what the heifer cleanses from. Bemet lakal nefesh adam fitame. The death of all beings of men is unclean. Now, is it simply a coincidence that the word for red and perfect sound a lot like the words for man and unclean? Listen to them. Adama tamima. Adam tame. Now, is it possible that there is no particular mystical reason that a perfect red heifer is to be used for the sacrifice? Rather, there might be a linguistic reason that teaches a lesson to humans that so desperately need to learn this lesson? The red, perfect, sacrificial animal cleanses the uncleanness of dead men. You see, word puns like this that are found in the Hebrew, they're not there for just any reason. Often they are specifically chosen words, and they're designed to highlight ideals that are connected in the course of the text. And these are things that we find all over in the Hebrew Bible, and they are a convention that is widely recognized in scholarly circles. We find word puns like this all through Scripture. Genesis 2-7, for example. And Hashem Elohim formed the man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, Adamah, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives. The man became a living being. Another quite ingenious example of a word pun is in the occurrence of a word is found in the occurrence of a word that is found chapters apart from each other in 1 Samuel 2 and 1 Samuel 4. In 1 Samuel 2, 29-30, Hashem is speaking to Eli, the priest, and he's telling him about his sons and what is going to be happening to them. Picking up in verse 29, it says, Why do you kick up my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor, kavod, your sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore Hashem, God of Israel, declares, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now Hashem declares, Far be it from me from those who from those who highly honor Kavod me. I highly honor Kavod, and those who despise me are lightly honored Kavod. Now word Kavod is extremely important, especially when we turn to first Samuel four, eighteen through twenty two when we read the story of the death of Eli's sons and then Eli's own death. And it came to be when he made mention of the Ark of Elohim that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy, Kavad. And he ruled Israel forty years, and his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife was pregnant, about to bear. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth because her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she set her heart to it. And she called the child Ichabod, without honor, saying, The honor, the kabod, has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The honor, kavod, has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. The lesson in the story being that the sons of Eli, who had been given honor, kavod, by Hashem, turned that honor into a means of satisfying their baser appetites. And they grew fat off the people. And so later, in chapter 4, Eli dies because he was Kavad, 
because he had grown fat in the same way as his sons. And the honor, kavod, of Israel was taken away, because the glory, kavod, of Hashem had been captured and removed. We even find Hebrew word puns throughout the Gospels if we translate them into Hebrew. Matthew 3, 9, for example, And do not presume to say for yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones, Ebenim, to raise up children, Benim, for Abraham. Ebenim, stones, and Benim, children. Or Mark four twenty six, And he said, The kingdom of God is as a man, an Adam, should scatter Zara, seed, Zara, on the ground, Adama. We even have a little chiastic word pun going on in that. Zara, scatter, and Zara, seed, and Adam, man, and Adama, ground. Word puns, they're everywhere in scripture. Every page is saturated with Hebrew word puns. The reason for their existence is, however, a widely debated topic. The most widely accepted reason for the wide use of word puns in scholarly circles is purely artistic. They are clever plays on words that bring a certain literary beauty to the text. And I'm not going to discount this idea. That is certainly true. There is a beauty to these word puns in the text. Another possible reason for the wide use of word puns in the Hebrew text is that the language of this sort lends itself to easy memorization. For an oral society, this would be of the utmost importance that the text could be easily remembered. And so when you use words that sound like each other, they act as a mnemonic to help the reader or help the listener to retain the text. And perhaps the least accepted reason for this use of Hebrew word puns is the idea that I just brought up. They highlight important concepts in the text. They are designed to cause us to slow down and to meditate on the words and ideas that are present in these similar sounding words. And I believe that is what is happening here. The purpose for the color of the red and the state of perfect is to call us to reflect on the thing that this addresses, the uncleanness of human death. Added to this red heifer in the ritual are several other items that we read of, and if we're paying attention, we'll recognize that we've read of them before in connection to cleansing from certain forms of uncleanness, these other items being cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. That's right. Each of these was used in the ceremony for cleansing the leper who had recovered from Tsarot. Each of these items is present, but they are used in completely different ways in each situation. And if you'll remember back to my teaching on Zaharot, you will remember that each of these items was present at the death of Yeshua, the ultimate sacrifice that cleanses from death. And yet each of these steps of the sacrifice that cleanses men from the ultimate form of uncleanness, in turn, makes men unclean. And this is where we find the conundrum and the riddle of the red heifer sacrifice. You see, in verse 8, we read that the person whose duty it is to burn the heifer, this clean man who takes on this task, is made unclean and has to wash and is unclean until evening. And then in verse 10, the man who carries the ashes of the heifer to the clean place outside of the camp, again, a clean man who takes this task is made unclean simply by carrying the ashes. And then in verse 21, we find the same thing. The clean man who administers the water of sin, or as it's called in this chapter, the waters of Nidah, in verse 9, 13, 20, and 21, is made unclean by the process. And again, this occurrence of the word Nidah for this water, we discover that this water has an unusual name attached to it. For Nidah is commonly thought to be a specific type of uncleanness. 
specifically the uncleanness associated with a woman's menstrual cycle. And we find this word nidah used in this way throughout Scripture. Leviticus 15 in multiple verses throughout the chapter. Leviticus 18.21, Ezekiel 18.6, Ezekiel 22.10, Ezekiel 36.17. This water that is described as the waters of sin in Numbers 8-7 through is here called the water of nidah, ultimate uncleanness. And this is not the only place where we find this water referred to with this name. Numbers 31:23 says that everything that you can stand, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for nidah, impurity. And whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. Of the spoils of war, if it can withstand fire, it is to be cleansed with fire. And then everything, whether it can withstand fire or not, is to be washed with this water. And so this conundrum is what is thought to be what Solomon was talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Touching any part of this water of uncleanness made a person unclean. Even administering the water of uncleanness to cleanse another person rendered the person who administered it unclean. How is this possible? What is happening here? It's counterintuitive. It's baffling. It's mystical. Unless, have you ever cleaned anything before that was just plain filthy? Something so dirty that it took concentrated cleaner just to get the job done. If you have, then you know just how dirty the process of cleaning something can make you. The dirt and the grime that is on the item to be cleaned, it gets in your clothes and in your hair and under your nails. Depending on what it is, it can get in your nose and your ears. So perhaps this is not counterintuitive at all. Perhaps we simply have to stop mystifying this process to arrive at the intuitive answer. And often cleaning solutions that are concentrated will cause some sort of dirtiness if you come in contact with them. Try getting bleach on you without cleaning it off. Often the act of cleaning makes a person unclean. Perhaps it's as simple as this. Perhaps this process is not what Solomon was speaking of when he wrote that verse. Perhaps the reason that we have trouble understanding this passage is because we have come to this passage with the wrong assumptions. We demand that there be some mystical reasoning for why this process works. We demand some mystical explanation for why administering the water of Dinah makes one person clean and another unclean. But maybe it's as simple as concentrated cleaning solution. You smell like bleach, as it were. Stay away from me for a day until you that drifts away and take a bath. Does it need to be more than that? Does the reason for a red heifer have to go beyond the lesson that's contained in the type of animal use? I'm not offering any answers here. I'm just asking the questions. And then there's the fact that this water is not simply for cleaning people. This water was used for cleaning anything that had come into contact with a dead human. The tent that a person died in? Every article is to be sprinkled with this water because if it is not, then the uncleanness will spread to anyone who comes into contact with those items. A pot that was in the room without a cover? Clean it with this water. The spoils of the war that the people got from the nations in the conquest? Every single item was to be washed with this water. This water is for cleansing all death from a person or item. Now, we've already touched on this, but the ceremony described here matches the ceremony for cleansing the leper in more than just the items used. 
We do find the same items used in both ceremonies, but it doesn't stop at the three items that were mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. Living water, commonly translated as running water, but the word used to describe this water is living, is put into a bowl. In the case of the leper, the blood of a bird is put in the water. In this case, the ashes of a heifer are then added to the bowl. In both cases, the contents of the vessel are then sprinkled on the one to be cleansed seven times using a hyssop branch. There is a seven-day waiting period before the person is finally declared clean. And there is another correlation in every type of uncleanness described. In the uncleanness associated with birth, there is a seven-day period of uncleanness that precedes the period of cleansing. And that's our oath cleansing. There's a seven day period of waiting outside the camp. And with our oath, there's a seven day waiting period just to diagnose the condition. With nida, there is seven day waiting period before being clean. With the contact with the dead body, there is a seven day waiting period. There seems to be a very real connection present between seven days and being purified from uncleanness. And if we really consider it, it appears as though there is a connection between all rituals of change of status. Being ordained as a priest and taking on holiness, that takes seven days. Sanctifying the tabernacle, that takes seven days. How long did Israel celebrate their covenant with Hashem at Sinai before Moses was called to the top? It was seven days. How long was Miriam in shame outside of the camp? It was seven days. And the list goes on. And I think we could discover if we sat and considered each of these occurrences of seven days in Scripture, we would find that there is a change being affected through this time of seven days in each and every case. In this case, it is unclean due to corpse defilement to clean. In other cases, it is from common to holy. Or it's from mourning to gladness, or from shame to honor, and so forth. Moving on, there's one last thing that we need to cover in this topic, and that is how the red heifer is a shadow of our Messiah and what he did for us. In the book of Ezekiel, we read a prophecy, one that is distinctly messianic as we find this prophecy carried out by Yeshua. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27 says, And I shall take you from among the nations, and I shall gather you out of all the lands, and I shall bring you into your own land. And I shall sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols I cleanse you. And I shall give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I shall take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you. And I shall cause you to walk in my laws and to guard my judgments and shall do them. You see, this red heifer, it served for a time. It served to cleanse Israel of the stench of death at the time of the tabernacle and the temple. But under the covenant that covers humankind in the spiritual, there's a new sacrifice that covers and cleanses from sin and uncleanness. Hebrews 9, 13-15 For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the defiled sets apart for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of the Messiah, who through the everlasting Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And because of this, he is the mediator of a renewed covenant, so that death, having taken place for redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those who are called might receive the promise of the everlasting inheritance. The sacrifices that are prescribed here in the Torah are sacrifices that only serve to cleanse the flesh, to make the flesh clean so that the humans could come before the Father in the physical realm, in physical bodies, into a physical tent. 
But with Messiah, we have the same thing, just not in the physical. A cleansing from sin that allows us to approach the Father in the heavenly and the spiritual. Because it is necessary for us to be spiritually clean before the Father and not simply physically clean. And the fact is that not a single one of us is physically clean in this way today. But we cannot approach Hashem in the physical today either, so this isn't a big issue for us. But we have been washed clean through the blood of Messiah in the spiritual, and God is spirit. And as the cleansing of the red heifer defeated the death that inhabits the flesh, the cleansing of the Messiah provides a cleansing from the spiritual death that awaits us all. For the wages of the sin that inhabits our flesh is death in the flesh. It's inescapable. We will all experience it. Romans 6, 22-23 But now, having been set free from sin and having become servants of God, you have your fruit resulting in holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the favorable gift of God is everlasting life in Messiah Yeshua, our Master. The death of the flesh is the wages that we deserve. The sin in our flesh needs to die, but we have the gift in the spirit of life through the sacrifice and the cleansing of the blood of Yeshua, our Lord and Master. And while we have life as individuals and as a community through Yeshua even now, the process as being worked out in the world is one that will result in the ultimate and final defeat of death once and for all. 1 Corinthians 15.20-26 But now Messiah has been raised from the dead and has become the first fruits of those having fallen asleep. For since death is through a man, resurrection of the dead is also through a man. For as all die in Adam, so also all shall be made alive in Messiah. And each in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, then those who are of Messiah at his coming, then the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to nothing all rule and all authority and all power. For he has to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be brought to nothing is death. Death will be defeated for mankind. Death will be defeated for all existence. We read of it throughout Scripture, Isaiah, Revelations, and many of the prophets. Death will pass away, and there will be no more mourning or sorrow. But we will remain. And in this, we find the true mystery of the red heifer sacrifice. The way that death is defeated is through death. In order for the stench of death to be removed from the people of Israel, a heifer had to die. One that was perfect, one that had honor and that it was never debased by work, one that had no corruption in it, and one that had no offspring, and one that had never known another animal. And through the sacrificial death of this animal, all of Israel was cleansed of death and they were able to find community with Hashem. They were able to draw close to Him in the flesh. And this mystery is a mystery of the Messiah. Eternal life is found not by avoiding death. Eternal life is found by passing through death. Just as Yeshua passed through death 
to find eternal life. And this overcoming of death is accomplished through the sacrifice of the Adama Tamim. And that sacrifice washes away the Adam Tame. As it was then, so it is today. And this is what Israel was experiencing in the wilderness. Life in the promised land then being a prefiguring of the millennial kingdom. In order to get there, the entire nation had to pass through death. The old generation, the one connected to Egypt, the one steeped in Egypt, the one familiar with the old ideals of worship and that seeks to embrace the cultural expectations of Egypt had to die. And a distinctly counter-cultural nation had to be raised up in its place. One that had learned to trust fully on Hashem and His ways, in His guidance, and in His plan. And this is the mystery of the red heifer, and the mystery of the gospel. Spiritual life is found through physical death. The putting to death of the flesh in order to find life with Messiah eternal. And that's where we are. We can be cleansed by the perfect Adam And the sacrifice cleanses us from the effects of death. And it is through the cleansing of the sacrifice that we can then approach the Father. And it is only through this death that we can truly find life. For the path of true life passes through His death. So seek life, Derechai, in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darius Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darius Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.